0: Every day we get up and we read blogs or articles and hear the news about our our world and the older you get, if, if you can relate with me, you start wondering what kind of world is it going to be for the next generation And I, I don't know about you, but when I look up here and see these young adults praising God and the words of their song, it may not be a beat you don't you may not like their beat. I don't know if you do, I like it, but if you don't. I hope you see that what they are saying, are it's about God's mercy, it's about grace. And I hope what you see is God is still raising up disciples. And they are living proof of it. And I'm excited that every one of those kids, well, young adults, grew up in families in this church. God is still doing that all around the world. So it gives me great hope. So let's give him a, them, him a hand and give them encouragement. <laughs> Well, let me review quickly where we've been as we've studied through the Gospel of Luke. We're in ch- today we're in chapter 18, verses 15 through 34. But Jesus has been on a journey to Jerusalem. He stopped in a village between Samaria and Galilee, as Luke records for us. And while in that village, Luke records some things that he has done and some things that he has said. And there's a theme that kind of emerges out of his actions and his words. First, we saw that he had mercy. That's Luke's words. That he had mercy... On ten lepers, and only one of those lepers came back and praised him and worshipped him. And Jesus said to that one that your faith has made you well. Then Jesus tells the parable of the persistent widow. And what was the point of that parable? This widow was desperate. Her only hope was that the judge would show her mercy. And then he tells another parable that Jake did a great job with last week where he praised the humble tax collector who was depending solely on the mercy of God, as opposed to the religious self-righteous Pharisee that was counting on his own efforts. So what we see is Jesus has been clearly presenting that all of being a disciple, the nature of his kingdom, how to be a part of his kingdom, is all about depending on his mercy and nothing about our efforts to merit righteousness with him. And, and it's been a very countercultural message. That he has been saying, this is not the way your world is. This is not natural in your mind. This is not how we normally think. This isn't how you and I think. We don't tend to think, oh, how do I make God right? Uh, make God pleased with me? How do I get right with God? Well, I depend on God's own mercy. That's not what our flesh tells us. Our flesh tells us to be religious, to do things, to to use our abilities, to, to make God happy with us if we just did enough. If we climbed this ladder up to God, that we would finally be okay. He would finally accept us. And that is completely contradictory to the gospel. And so Jesus is telling us, Story after story, parable after parable, event after event, Luke records for us to say it is not about self reliance. And so today we see this countercultural message is that, that what is actually a genuine disciple? If you really want to repackage last week, this week, and next week, it's part one, part two, and part three of genuine discipleship. In our culture, just about everybody says they're a Christian, and, and if just about every Christian has a tendency to point to the church that they belong to, and what they do, and, and it's not that that's all bad, but it's like we can't miss the point of the gospel. And so today we're going to look at three more characteristics of genuine disciples from Luke 18, verses 15 through 34. Lord, I ask for your help this morning because everything in our mind, everything in our flesh, everything in this culture, everything is built against the truth of your message. Help us, Lord, prove to us, open our hearts to see truly what it means to be a genuine disciple, that we may examine ourselves, that we may become a true, genuine disciple, and that we may honor you, and be molded into your image to be more authentic, more genuine disciples. We ask this through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so three characteristics of genuine discipleship. First, we see it's the first characteristic is childlike dependency. A childlike dependency. And I get this from verses 15 through 17. We're going to see that genuine disciples live with a childlike dependency he says in verse 15 now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them now even infants to him and the way that they viewed infants that's what they mean even infants now in our culture we don't have the same view of infants they had disdain for infants infants we worship them I mean, we put them, our children are our world, and everything in this culture, everything is about the children. Well, in their culture, that child was a nuisance until they could produce at the house. Can I get a witness? Amen. (laughs) They said, look, you are really of value when you can start contributing to the family business. And so they say it with disdain that they were even bringing the infants to Jesus. Now, What I think the scene is creating here is if you imagine Jesus, he's been creating this name for himself as he's been walking on this journey towards Jerusalem. He's been healing, he's been doing miracles, he's been teaching, and everyone is just up in arms, just up in an uproar about this amazing man that's doing these incredible miracles. And so... He comes to town, he parks in this little village for a while, and he's teaching, and I see a line that's forming of people wanting to be next in line to see Jesus. And the disciples see who's next in line, and they see these moms bring in their infants, these annoying infants. Why don't you take them to the nursery, is what they're saying. And they see right behind them is this powerful CEO, executive, the guy you want to join your church, right? You got this rich ruler standing in line behind these moms with their infants. And when the disciples saw this in verse 15, they rebuked them. Ladies, take your kids out of here. Why are you, why are you, you're keeping this man. Now this man deserves to see Jesus. This man's rich, he's powerful, he has status, he has wealth. If anybody has a right to get to the front of the line, it's this man. So they rebuke these children, these men, these women. Get these children out of here. That's our culture. Our culture thinks that those who have status, wealth, power, privilege, those are the ones that clearly are blessed by God. And what does Jesus say to this? Verse 16, Jesus called to them, Jesus called to him, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. To, to people like this, to such as these, belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What a contradictory, what a counter-cultural message. He looks to the people as they are looking down these kids with disdain, and he says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You don't understand. If you don't become like one of these that you consider a nuisance, that you consider a zero value in status, if you don't become like one of these, then you aren't really one of my disciples. Wow. This is a counter-cultural message. Jesus says, if you... He's saying that to all of us today. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to enter into my kingdom, you've got to become like one of these children. So we have to ask the question, what exactly does it mean to be like a child? And when we answer that question, our tendency is usually to go to some true things about children that may kind of parallel our uh, understanding of being a disciple. We want to say, well, we've got to be innocent and naive, and that's not really what he's saying. If you look at the context, what he's saying it means to become a child is to be like that tax collector that we looked at last week. You had the Pharisee who was who had a lot to offer in his situation. It was, let me offer my religion. Let me offer my prayers. Let me offer my keeping of the law. Let me be religious and show you all that I bring to God and and show you why I deserve to be in the kingdom of God. And then there was the tax collector who said, i got nothing. I've got nothing to bring you but my sin, and I'm broken over my sin. I have spiritual poverty to give And Jesus said, that's what I want you to be like. And then to reemphasize the message of genuine disciples, he says, it's not about being the religious Pharisee. It's about being the humble, like this child, these children that have been brought to Jesus who had nothing to offer. All they have to offer is dependence on the mercy of Jesus. You see, in their culture, uh, infant mortality was off the charts. And these mothers have been seeing Jesus heal Raising children from the dead, raising people from the dead, and doing miracles. And they are just bringing their children, going, I know, that, I know they're not supposed to be here, but maybe Jesus will be merciful. I know we don't belong. I know this ruler should be ahead of me, but I love my kid, and I want them to have the mercy of Jesus. And that's what he says. That's what it takes. Genuine disciples have that kind of childlike dependency to say I have no right to be in the presence of God, but just maybe I'll experience his mercy. Jesus says that's what, if you're here today, that's what it means to be a disciple. Genuine disciples have a childlike dependency on God. And now it doesn't just start that way it starts that way by saying I am a sinner and I need God to show me mercy and he promised to do that through Jesus that's why he died on the cross to forgive me of my sins and to give me this is ridiculous to give me credit for Jesus's holiness and perfection and he says I'll do that for you as a gift It doesn't just start that way, the childlike dependency on his mercy starts that way, but then every day the life of a disciple is a life of childlike dependency, a life of realizing I can't do today what God has called me to do. I am a child, I am desperate for God's grace and God's mercy, I can't do anything apart from him. And so what we see is that our only hope becomes Jesus. We have a childlike dependency on Jesus daily. And you know what that evidences itself as? A lot of prayer. A lot of prayer. Not pious prayer like, oh, I'm going to do these religious sounding prayers that make me elevate myself with God. That's not what he wants. He says, I don't need that. What, What is the point of that? But prayer in the sense of a constant dependency on God, like a child. God, I need your grace. God, I need your help. Lord, if you don't provide the job, I won't have. The money to pay the bills, Lord. If you don't watch over my children, we are hopeless. Lord, if you aren't faithful, then I don't have a chance. Lord, give me the words I need for this situation. Lord, give me the wisdom to make this business decision. Lord, help me know which way to go. Lord, give me what I need each day to glorify you. Genuine disciples live with a childlike dependency. Do you live with a childlike dependency? Everything in our flesh works against this. Everything in the world. Your parents probably raised you, son. You got to do all this. You got to be that. And that's true. But what we understand is apart from Christ, we don't have a chance of doing anything for his glory. I love the illustration that says that it's a picture of a tree that's been planted in soil that's been contaminated with toxic waste. And so that tree produces gorgeous looking apples. But every time you pull that apple and eat of that apple, it's still laced with poison. And so that tree is incapable of producing fruit that is beneficial. That's the way we are apart from Christ. You may do good deeds and you may accomplish great things. But apart from the work of God's grace, it is of no value in the kingdom of God. And so the difference is prayer. Living with a disciple's dependence on Christ is a life of prayer. Continual communication and dependency on the Lord like a child. That's the first mark of a, child, of a genuine disciple is childlike dependency. The second mark is on a similar note we see is reliance upon grace. Genuine disciples... Have a reliance upon grace. And we see this, made, this point made in verse 18. Look what he says in 18. Obviously next in line was the rich ruler. A ruler steps up and asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now think about that question. What must I do now to inherit eternal? eternal life in the future that's the tenses now what must I do so that in the future I will inherit eternal life and Jesus said to him well before we answer that question let me ask you a question why do you call me good what's Jesus doing there Jesus says if you wanna know the, the key to eternal life let's begin with who you think Jesus is he says you call me good teacher well, there's only one who is truly good, and that's God, God alone. So why do you call me good? Do you call me good because you know I'm God? And so he's forcing this, this rich ruler to say, well, wait, how do I view Jesus? So this is really a, a claim of Jesus' divinity to say, you, you call me good? Well, that means you think I'm God. Is that what you think? But then he answers his questions. He said, he said let, me, let me tell you what you've got to do. What you got to do in your own strength, because I know that's what you're thinking, because that's what the world thinks, is what do I got to do to earn my eternal life? He says, let me tell you what you got to do. I'm going to go with that mindset. Tell me something. In verse 20, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness, Honor your father and mother. Now, where did he start in the Ten Commandments there? Did he start at the beginning? No, if you know, there's... There's two pages on that document, right? Two stone tablets. Half of them were all about, first, love God. Don't have idols, images, all that. It was all about your vertical relationship with God. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. But if you want to know what you got to do, let me go to page two of the Ten Commandments, and let's talk about that, because this is what you're focused on, is what you think you can do to make me, grant you eternal life. You say you don't commit adultery, you don't murder, you don't steal, do fault with us, honor your fault with us. How have you done with that? And that, that rich ruler says, I've nailed it. I've nailed it. I've kept all of those from my youth. Now, have he kept all those from his youth? We know from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus said We need to rethink how you are measuring yourself to the law. He said, you've heard it say, thou shalt not commit adultery. And all the Pharisees and all the religious elite said, yeah, we aren't committing adultery, but those sinners are. And Jesus says, now, wait a minute. I say that if you lust, you've committed adultery. And they're like, what? And he says, you've heard it say Thou shalt not commit murder. And they're like, that's right. We're better than all those murderers. And he says, but I say to you, if you've got anger in your heart, you've broken that command. And he goes through. And you say, don't, don't steal. That's right. Those, those disgusting. I'm glad I'm not like those. Like the, the Pharisee last week, he was saying, I'm glad I'm not like that and that. And Jesus says, if you've coveted, you've broken that. So what is Jesus doing? He's going to the heart. He's saying being a Christian is not all about just behavioral modification. It's not about just clean your act up. It's not about just get Christian-like and get pretty and get religious. He says it must start with the first half of those Ten Commandments. It must start with your personal relationship with God. It must start with who is your God. Who is your God? And that's why he says, when Jesus heard him say, I've kept the law, I've kept those things, I've I've, I've compared myself to others, and I've done it, nailed it. When Jesus heard this in verse 22, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Wow. What's he saying there? What's he doing? Jesus is forcing this rich ruler to choose his God. It's like Jesus came in here and stood up on stage and said, Tracy, sit down and be quiet. And he said, listen. Listen. Every one of you call yourself a disciple, but you got to choose your God. Which is it? You can't have two masters. You can't serve God and wealth. Because you'll hate one and love the other. Or you'll love one and hate the other. But you can't have two gods. Now, which will it be? And how do you know? Is he says, I'm asking you, if you're going to be my disciple... You lay all your wealth, all your riches, all your status, all your power, all that you have, you lay it on the altar, and you say, God, what do you want to do with it? Now, who's his disciple? You can't serve both. So Jesus is forcing this rich ruler to choose between God and possessions. How did he respond? Verse 23. This is such an interesting verse. But when this wealthy ruler heard these things, he became very sad. Why? Because he was extremely rich. Isn't that interesting? That is so telling to me. That is so, it resonates with my heart. The more I hold on to, thinking it is where the joy is, the sadder I get. This man was extremely rich, And he was unwilling to let it go, to serve God with it. And he was very sad because he was very rich. So what was going on in this man's heart? What does this tell us about him? He loved his money, his possessions, and his power, and was unwilling to lay it at the altar of Jesus. And so he chose his God. What is your choice? Are you a genuine disciple? Our world tells you you must be because you live in the dream. And Jesus says, oh, be very careful because in verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said this, oh, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Do you hear what he just said? walked into Norris Ferry Church and said, Oh, how difficult it is for people who have wealth to be saved. Then he says, let me help you understand this. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for people like you. To enter the kingdom of God. People all the time say to me, wait, what are you doing now? We planted a church about 13, 14, 15 years ago. Where is it? Norris Ferry. Oh, yeah, Norris Ferry. Oh, tough calling. I.E., yeah, that's real tough, isn't it? And I want to say, oh, it's not tough physically. But we are being warned by Jesus. It is the hardest for us to enter the kingdom of God than anybody on this planet. It's such a strange paradox. The thing that the world says is what we all want, we have it. And what Jesus says, oh my gosh, be careful. Because that makes it really hard for you to be my disciple. Like I said a few weeks ago, with the Lord of the Rings, that ring, it's just like this power. that's Money is, just has this power that's constantly pulling us and pulling us and wanting to corrupt us and, and say, oh, be about me, be about me, not about Jesus. Mark Allen Powell makes a great point in his commentary. He says this. Listen to his words. He says, the dilemma, he says, we're in a dilemma. The dilemma for rich people is this. Lepers and blind people want to be set free from that which inhibits them. But rich people usually do not. Lepers and blind people, oh Lord, rid me of these things that keep me from being a part of faithful, fruitful member of your kingdom. Rich people usually don't pray, Lord, take all this money if it keeps me from being a fruitful, faithful disciple. Why? Why don't we ever pray that? Because we love it. I'm too busy trying to find my lake house. Too busy asking, wait, are we supposed to give 10%? What's the, what's the rule here? I want to measure up, but just don't tell me it's too much. Jesus says, oh, it's so hard for you who have so much to be my disciples. This idea of wealth being an obstacle is so counterintuitive, it's so countercultural that their response upon hearing Jesus say to this rich man, It's so hard for you to be my disciple because you have so much. They go, well, then who in the world can be saved? Verse 26. Well, then who can be saved if this one can't be saved? This one who has all the appearance of success in our eyes, if he can't be saved, well, then who can be saved? It's so counterintuitive. And Jesus says to him, verse 27. What's impossible with man is possible with God." That's not how we quote that verse, is it? Now we know what that verse means. It's not, "Hey, what's impossible for God is possible. What's impossible for man is possible for God? I'm going to go conquer the world." He says the exact opposite. He says, "You want to be rid of your love for money? Well, it's impossible apart from God. You want to be rid of your idol. Your love for your children more than God. It's impossible but by the grace of God. The only way that you will be a disciple is if God works his grace in your heart and rips out those idols. One after another just rips them out and says, quit loving these things more than me. That's the second characteristic of a disciple is reliance upon grace. You see, what I pray we don't do is that we don't take this idea of give your money away and turn it into another rung on the ladder of self righteousness, another thing I got to do to measure up, another thing, oh, I got to give more to the church. That's what the pastor's saying. That is not what I'm saying. What Jesus is saying is that you need the grace of God to free your heart from the love of anything that you love more than Jesus. And you need it every day, just like I need it every day. You see, we enter into a relationship with God like a child, saying, I've got nothing to offer you. I can't do anything. I'm just an infant. I've got nothing that I can do to impress you. I've got all—all all my relationship is with Jesus—is this constant dependence. I need, I need, I need, I need. It doesn't just start that way. It's a daily reliance upon the grace of God, Lord. I am falling in love with this world and the things of this world. My heart continually is captured by other treasures. I continue to fail to see how glorious you are. And I need you to do a work of grace in my heart. That's the type of thing that genuine disciples pray. It's a constant reliance upon his grace. Is that a mark of your life? A battle? The working is not to work yourself up, but to work yourself down and to get yourself back on that altar that you keep crawling off of. Childlike like dependence, a reliance upon grace. And finally, we see that when we get that, right, when we taste and see how good his grace is, there's only one response, sacrificial living that's our third genuine characteristic of genuine discipleship is sacrificial living in response to Jesus saying, sell everything. In verse 28, Peter says, of course it's Peter. I love Peter. He makes me feel so much better about myself. In verse 28, Peter says, hey, we did that. <laughs> hey, look over here, Jesus. Remember, we left everything for you. We left our homes, and we followed you. Now, if I was Jesus, I would say, Peter, zip it over there. You're not good here. You're not helpful. That's not what Jesus does. He's so gracious. In verse 29, he said to them, yes, you did. He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left a house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. What does he say in there? He said, yes, you did. And let me tell you something, Peter. It will be worth it. Now and forever. That's That's amazing. Now, we don't really understand this statement because we live in a safe society thus far that it doesn't cost you everything to choose to follow Jesus. But there's a lot of places in the world where if you choose to follow Jesus, you are disowned, you are abused, possibly sought after to end your life, you lose your family inheritance, you you lose your job, you lose everything. And Jesus says, I know it's costing you everything, but there's none of you that leave everything that won't receive more in this life and in the life to come. Now, we can't take it too literal because if we do, it gets pretty messed up. Because he said none of you who left your, your house, your wife, your brothers, your parents, and your children, you'll receive more in this life. So he's not saying literally you'll get more houses, more wives, more husbands, brothers, and children. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it will be worth it. Now what he is saying to them very literally or spiritually, if you leave your, if, if your family leaves you because you have chosen Jesus, these people will be your family. You'll have more mamas and more daddies. You'll have a greater inheritance. You'll have jobs. You'll have what you need. Way more than what you had when you were On your own, away from me. He says, I got you. It's going to be worth it. Now, oh, and so much more. Eternal life. Eternal life. There's a reward system, I'm convinced, in the scriptures that entices us to live faithfully now. It says, the more you sacrifice in faith for the glory of God now, the greater your enjoyment of God Almighty will be forever. Direct correlation. The more you suffer now for Jesus, the greater you will enjoy Jesus forever. It'll be worth it now and forevermore. Genuine disciples understand sacrificial living motivated by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. He gives a second reason. He says, I want you to be sacrificial in your living. I want you to live sacrificial lives. Look at verse 31. He says, and then Luke tells us, and taking the 12, he said to them, now look, we're about to head up to Jerusalem. And everything that was written about the Son of Man, by the prophets, is about to happen. For he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles, he'll be mocked, he'll shamefully treat to he'll be spit upon. And after flogging him, they're going to kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. This is the clearest prophecy in the scriptures of jesus's mock trials his death his burial and his resurrection before it ever happened we looked at that at easter and palm sunday it says in verse 34 but they didn't understand these things that was hidden from them they didn't grasp what was said john tells us after the resurrection light bulbs are going off they're like oh that's what he meant so what does he say in here He's already said, first of all, live sacrificial lives motivated by my grace and mercy in your life. Why? Because it's going to be worth it, I promise. And now he says, and I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't already done for you. So much more. See, what what Jesus is saying to you today, I've blessed you richly, especially us. I've blessed you richly. I left everything I had, all the riches, all the glory, every, the fullness of that definition of wealth that you can imagine. He says, I left it all, and I entered into this miserable suffering. And then on this earth, I did it again. I left my parents' I left my friends, I left my town, I walked away from a pursuit of worldly possessions, a pursuit of my own personal agenda, and he says, I did only what the Father told me to do, and I did it for you. So that you could have eternal life, so that I could give you, Jesus says, so Jesus could give you everything you need to be cleansed, to be declared righteous. And he says, now I'm asking you to do the same. But I'm telling you something, it's a better life. Because if you walk away from this call, it's very sad. Because you're very rich. Father, I pray that we will heed your call. I pray that you will give us a heart that sees the truth of your promises, that it is such a better life. The abundant life comes by humbling ourselves as children. Depending on your mercy, relying solely on your grace and laying our yes on the table. Placing our lives, our gifts, our resources, our money, possessions, power, status, our dreams, our egos, our, our goals, our careers, our children, our family, everything, laying them at the altar. And saying, Lord, do you want me to serve you today? That it is worth it. That is the path of abundant life. For it is the path that brings you glory. Lord, help us. And it's in Christ's name we pray.